God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brushing your teeth, checking your email, opening a door, eating a sandwich. What do all of these mundane activities have in common with one another? Besides the fact that you've probably done a few of them already today, one of the other main correlations is the fact that they are accomplished primarily using hands. In fact, I think many of us would consider it quite difficult to be able to accomplish any of those tasks without the use of our hands. In fact, hands have become so indispensable that so often we don't even realize how much we use our hands. It it almost becomes second nature to us, often like breathing does. We don't even have to think about it. Which is why, at least for me personally, I've found that this midweek Lenten series on Hands of the Passion has been quite an interesting one because it's not something that you would always consider. And yet over these last several weeks, we have taken a look at the various hands associated with Jesus' passion, the suffering and ultimately death of our Savior. But tonight, or I should say this afternoon, the hands that we take a look at are not the hands of of Peter or Pontius Pilate. They're not the hands of Caiaphas or Judas. They're not even the hands of Jesus. Instead, they're the two sets of hands that we heard in our parable for this afternoon. The well-known parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, no doubt you've heard this parable before, perhaps even many times. It's a familiar parable even for Sunday school. And yet, what I want you to do today is to look at it with fresh eyes. To be able to to perhaps imagine what these two men would have looked like as they came to the temple. Maybe imagine what their prayers would have sounded like. And then to follow along with our midweek series, focus on their hands. What would their hands have been doing when they were praying? As we do that, hopefully we can come to learn about and appreciate what it means to have hands of repentance. The scene for this parable takes place in the temple in Jerusalem, where Jesus introduces us to two fictitious yet very realistic characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Both of these men come to the temple for the exact same reason. They both come to pray. They even start their prayers with the same word, God. And yet that's where the similarities end. On the one hand, you have the Pharisee. That if you've been in church for any amount of time in your life, you've probably heard that the Pharisees are some of the religious elite during Jesus' day. They were the ones who were always quick to seize the moral high ground, to say that they were better than you were. They were the ones who would say, we keep God's law seriously, while all of you guys really don't do it as seriously. And this one particular Pharisee wanted to make sure that everyone knew that. 
And so he starts his prayer. He, he gets into the temple. He finds the most prominent spot. And then he says, God, I thank you. Now, if we were just to pause his prayer there, I think we could all agree that that would be a good prayer. It would be a prayer that any one of us could pray. It's a prayer that parents might teach their children to pray. God, I thank you. And if that was indeed where the Pharisee ended his prayer, it would have been a great prayer. God, I thank you. Amen. And yet that's not where he concludes his prayer. Instead, as we know, as we listen to that prayer a little bit more, it not so much is a prayer of thanksgiving, but of really patting himself on his back. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like robbers or evildoers or adulterers, and certainly I'm not like that tax collector. Now, it really doesn't matter what his hands were doing, right? Whether they were, as we typically fold our hands in prayer, or whether they're, they're lifted up to God in prayer, he really was giving himself that proverbial pat on the back. He felt that he had kept all of God's commandments. Keeping the seventh commandment, he hadn't stolen anything. Kept the sixth commandment. He hadn't committed adultery with anyone. In fact, in this Pharisee's eyes, he felt that he had kept every single one of God's commandments. Yet even that wasn't quite true. In this Pharisee's mind, not only did he think he had kept all of the commandments, but he felt that he had gone above and beyond. He had given 110%. God should be thanking the Pharisee, not the other way around. And just in case God wasn't paying attention or he was too busy with the other people who were more sinful than he, the Pharisee elaborates on all of the good things that he had done. I fast twice a week. Compare that to the one time in the law of Moses that God required fasting. One time, not per week, but one time per year. This Pharisee gave a tenth of everything he got. Didn't matter if it was his income. Didn't matter if it was his stimulus check. Didn't matter if God deserved it or not. He gave 10% of it. The Pharisee certainly looked good on the outside. There were perhaps any number of Jews who were looking at that Pharisee and saying, you know what, I wish, I just wish I could be more like him. And yet, what was going on on the inside? Now, the Gospel writer Luke does not give us insight into what was going on in the Pharisee's heart. He doesn't give us the motivation for why he prayed such a prayer. And so anything that we do is just going to be pure speculation. And yet, because the sinful nature does not change over the centuries, I think it's okay to do a little bit of speculation. Was this Pharisee so full of himself, so impressed with himself, that he was completely blinded by his sinful pride? Didn't even realize how he sounded. 
Or perhaps the Pharisee knew himself a little bit more than we do, and, and he knew that there were some things that he didn't do so well, so he wanted to focus on the things that he did really, really well so that it could distract from the things that he didn't do so well. Or maybe perhaps the Pharisee's reason for praying this prayer wasn't so much to convince others of his special relationship with God, but maybe to try and convince himself. Any way you slice it, this Pharisee did not have hands of repentance. And it's that whole idea of repentance that forms the basis for why we even have a season in the church here called Lent. A a special time when when we can not only acknowledge our sins, but ask for forgiveness for those sins. A time when we can look to Jesus as the only way that we can get to heaven. And yet this Pharisee did absolutely none of that. He, He didn't have any sins to confess, at least in his own mind. So he didn't confess any. And so it didn't matter how many prayers this Pharisee prayed. It didn't matter how many good things he had done. He went home empty-handed before God. Compare that to the other set of hands we heard about. The hands of the tax collector. The tax collector who knew that that just about everyone in that temple detested him. And so he found a spot a little bit out of the way that that wouldn't draw so much attention, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but rather bowed his head and, and beat his breast. He knew who he was, he knew what he had done, and he simply said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He didn't try and compare himself other people who were not as good as he was. He did not try and use his good deeds to somehow balance out the deeds that that he was not proud of. He simply looked in the mirror of God's law and saw himself for who he was, a sinner. He saw that the only chance he had was to fall down and plead for God's mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a short prayer. Seven words in English. Yet it was a powerful one. It was powerful because it was genuine. Because it came from a heart of humble faith that leaned upon the mercy of God. It was a prayer that was rewarded As Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this man and not the other went home justified before God. For anyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now it's also important for us to notice who Jesus spoke this parable to. It wasn't spoken to Pharisees. It wasn't spoken to tax collectors. It wasn't even just spoken to his disciples. In fact, the opening words of the Gospel of Luke tell us that that he spoke this to people who were confident of their own righteousness 
and looked down on everyone else. As you try to envision that crowd, there may be some faces that you recognize. People in your own life who are are confident of themselves and look down on others. Perhaps it's the classmate at school who's always bragging how great she is. Or maybe it's that person at work that's always telling you how to do your job. Perhaps it's that opinionated neighbor that always has to let her opinion be made known. Or perhaps it's that friend who uses every Christmas as an excuse to brag about how great their family is. And you can probably think of any number of other people who are confident in themselves and look down upon others. And yet, as we scan out across that crowd, we begin to see another face. A face that looks surprisingly like my own. Because when I complain about people who think that they are better than me, Am I not really saying that I am better than they are? If I criticize the people who look down their noses at others, am I really not just looking down my nose at them? I know one of the places where this really strikes home is with me as a parent. And as I look at other parents in my life, and I say, "Eh, you know what, I wouldn't have done that. I don't think that's the right way to parent your kids. Am I not thinking that I am a better parent than they are? It's true that we might not be like the Pharisee and get up here in front of church and and call out specific individuals, but does that make it any less of a sin, especially if we're still harboring those very same thoughts in our hearts and in our minds? Can God not come and judge those very same thoughts in our hearts and our minds when we think that we are better than others? It's precisely for this reason. The reason that it's so easy to act like the Pharisee, to to say, God, thank you for making me not like other people that we need precisely to remember the prayer of the tax collector. Because we too need that mercy. We too need to, to bow our heads, to beat our chests, and to be able to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we do that, we notice a third pair of hands. That is the hands of the person who told this parable. If there was ever anyone that had reason to boast, it would have been Jesus. The one who followed all of the rules. He kept all the laws of the land. He obeyed his parents. In fact, he kept every single one of God's commands perfectly. And he didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. If there was ever anyone that that would have no reason to be humble, that could have bragged about anything, it would have been Jesus. As true God, he, he knew all things. He created all things. He had all power. 
And yet he humbled himself, became a servant, took on our flesh, allowed himself to be betrayed, to be falsely accused, to be executed. Not because he had any sins of his own, but all because of you. God, in his mercy, sent Jesus to live a perfect life in your place, to die a death in your place, to rise again for you so that you could have a place beside him in heaven. In his mercy, God gives us the amazing gift of prayer, the ability to talk to him anywhere, anytime, about anything. And he gives us that wonderful promise that he does hear our prayers and that he will answer them. Maybe not in the way that you want it to be answered, but he promises to answer it in the best way possible for you. In his mercy, God gives us the wonderful gift of the Lord's Supper where he takes simple bread and wine and adds to them his body and blood for the personal assurance for the forgiveness of your sins. We pray, God, have mercy on me. God does have mercy on us. Because God has mercy on us, we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to feel guilty. We know that God is walking with us every step of our life and that in the end, we know where we're going to end up. This is the wonderful promise of God. So we can depart this house of worship today with humble confidence that we are in good hands. We are in God's hands. Amen. Now may he who began a good work in you carry it out to completion in the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.